community for people who've given up on church but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, If this is your first time, my name is Aaron. I'm the teaching pastor here at Westlake. What a great uh, joy it is to welcome you this morning. We're continuing in Jonah today. I want to start with a little story. When I was in my early 20s, I was dating uh, this beautiful woman named Mary Robin, and uh, we had just started dating, and my folks had recently moved to Houston, Texas, and they had joined a sailing club there. Now, we did not know how to sail in my family, but thankfully, uh, an eight-hour course on one weekend certifies you to take 40-foot vessels out into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so we did that, and uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, we, we just sailed around. We stuck to the bay during our training. We didn't actually go out into the Gulf. Well, then, uh, Mary Robin, was, our relationship was finally getting serious enough that we, I decided I needed to bring her out to meet my parents. And I thought, you know, this is the perfect opportunity to impress Mary Robin with how sophisticated we Gibsons are at our sailing club. So we were talking up these vessels, and uh, like we knew what we were talking about, and there were visions and dreams of wine and cheese and chips and queso on the deck of this sailboat in the Gulf of Mexico. That's at least what we had planned. Uh, Well, the weather wasn't looking too good that day, and we kind of chose to ignore the weather, and we went out anyway. We got out. Now, we were under the iron jenny, as sailors call it, the engine, all the way out until we got into the Gulf. And it was at that moment that I I thought, uh, this might not be the best idea, but my father, the farmer from Nebraska, uh, raised the sail all the way to the top instantly in about 10 seconds. A gust of wind caught the boat, and all of a sudden the boat, you don't have to be a sailor to picture this, all of a sudden the boat did a 90-degree angle, and the mast and the sail hit the water. Now, have you ever had a Dukes of Hazard moment? Do y'all know what I'm talking about in Dukes of Hazzard? You remember this right before the commercial break? Like the 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 what what the general leaves like in the air and you don't you don't know what's gonna happen to Bo and Luke. This was my general hazard moment. Okay, I, I'm I'm sideways in the boat like this, and I'm thinking, how did I end up here? Uh, I would later find out that Mary Robin contemplated jumping ship and swimming to the shore. Uh, thankfully she didn't, and we are married today. Now, um, this story has nothing to do with the sermon today. I just had to tell you it because it's a time that I was in a boat and I almost drowned. (laughs) We are continuing today in our series on Jonah. And chances are, even if you are not a Bible person, uh, you've probably heard of this story, Jonah and the whale before, right? It's a very famous story. But what you might not know about this story is that the fish, the famous second character in the story, the fish is actually not really that big a deal. The fish only appears in two sentences in the whole of the story. Well, last week we learned that uh, Jonah is a pro- Jonah was, excuse me, a prophet. And that means that he's the kind of person that the word of the Lord would come to for him to then deliver to God's People. Now, Jonah is different as a prophet because it's not his words that we hear as much as his life that we get to witness. 
God comes to Jonah. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to the people there. Now, if you remember, the Ninevites are not exactly what Jonah has in mind uh, as the kind of people he wants to go to or the kind of people he hopes God will save. In fact, the Ninevites, we learned last week, were his enemies. Remember, the Ninevites are the bad guys. And Jonah fears what he knows to be true about God, that he is merciful, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger and abounding in love. And he doesn't want the Ninevites to get in on any of that. So Jonah does the only thing he can think to do. He runs. He runs. He packs his bags. He heads down to a port called Joppa, and he buys a ticket heading as far in the opposite direction as Nineveh, uh, from Nineveh as he could possibly get. And we have a map of this. Do you all remember? This is just a recap from last week. There's Nineveh. There's Joppa. And Jonah heads in the entire opposite direction. You see, Jonah, here's what we learned last week. Jonah was a runner. Jonah was a runner. And maybe you can relate. Because Jonah and you, Jonah and I have something in common. Every one of us in this room, at some point in our lives, has attempted to run from God. Now, see, when I say run from God, I don't mean physically like Jonah did. Uh, For for many of us, running from God looked uh, something like this. Maybe you grew up in church, uh, and at some point in high school or in college or in your adult life, you said, see you later, God. You can stay, God. You can stay back at the church with those folks because I've got plans. I've got a life to live, God. I've got places to go, people to meet. And God, I don't want you cramping my style. And so intentionally or unintentionally, you turned your back on God. And you've sort of been running, right? Or maybe your running isn't that general kind of running. Maybe your running is more of a specific kind of running. In general, you don't really have any problem with God, but there's this one part of your life where you're like, God, I, I just want you to stay out of this part. Because honestly, God, she's really cute and she can become a Christian, okay? God, it's a lot easier for someone to become a Christian than for someone to become really, really cute. So just stay out of this. <laughs> just stay out of this. God, I'm fine on my own. And you're kind of relationally running. You get a feel for that? Or maybe it's not, uh, in, in a, maybe it's in marriage. And you, you know what God's asking of you to forgive, to love, to lean in, to invest. But you're, you're just kind of running. Or maybe it's at work or at school, and and you know the right thing to do. You know what God would have you do, but you don't want to do it because it will be embarrassing. Or maybe your grades might suffer, or the numbers at work won't look good. And so you're running. You're running. You're running from God. Do you get a feel for that? Here's the thing. Whether you're a general kind of runner or a specific kind of runner, we all run. And here's the thing that every runner eventually learns. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. You can run from God, but you will never outrun God. And as we're going to see in our story today, this, my friend, this is actually really, really, really good news. Really good news. Now, before we jump in, I need to say something else about this story. Because 
If you know this story, you probably know it because you first encountered it as a children's story of some kind, right? Maybe you saw a cartoon of it with singing, dancing vegetables, or maybe, maybe you, you read this book to your kids. And, the, and look, I'm all for teaching the Bible to our children. And Beverly, our kid travels team, does an amazing job. We do it at our home. I'm all for that. But here's the problem. Here's the risk with children's literature. Because children's literature, children's media, when it comes to the Bible, has a tendency to domesticate it, to Disneyify it, where every story gets reduced to being cute and a lesson about being nice. Let me tell you, the story of Jonah is not about being nice. In fact, I did a little survey. I came across some books. Maybe maybe you like this one, this one here. Look at this. Uh, That's a very scary-looking whale, isn't it right? I I think that whale probably is vegan and eats only kale. Uh, I'm not... uh, Now, this one tries to wrestle with the story a little bit more. See, this one, you still have the... You still have the cute whale, but I mean, that's like a, he's like munching on a gingerbread Jonah there or something. That's like, that's a little scary, right? Uh, See, the truth is that the story of Jonah is a much more ominous, much more wild kind of story. In fact, if we are to really sit in, if we are to really consider what this story has, if we are really to ponder the depths of this story, I think it might unnerve us just a little bit. It might undo some of our concepts of God, which might themselves be too domesticated or too Disneyified, because he is a wild God who will not be tamed. Look at how the story begins. This is just kind of crazy. Remember from last week, first three verses, Jonah has run from God. He's boarded a boat, and look what happens next. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now this opening scene, the storm, introduces two words to us that are going to dominate our story. Uh, The second word is the word afraid or fear. We're going to get to that in just a few moments. But the first word is a fascinating word. It's the word gadol. Gadol. It's the word that means great. Everyone say gadol. Good. It's kind of like uh, Crocodile Dundee, right? Good day, gadol. Okay, so gadol. Gadol means great, but not in the way that we think. You know, not like, oh, how was supper last night? Oh, it was great. It's not that kind of great. This is great in terms of magnitude, scale, power. It's great that is greater than something. It's why the Bible speaks about God as higher than, mightier than, greater than all other gods. And this word is everywhere in the story of Jonah. In fact, it occurs no less than 13 times, six of them in this one chapter. The city of Nineveh is great. The storm that God sends is great. Even the fish is described as the dag gadol, the great fish. But God doesn't just send a great storm. The text tells us that he hurls this storm on the sea. There's violence to this. And as a reader, especially a modern day reader, this is kind of disturbing. God is slinging, hurling the storm onto the sea with violence, this great storm. And that's not quite the Disney version of God that I have in my brain. What about the other boats that day? What about the other sailors? 
What about other ships? Why would God do that? And that is the point. This is the question the author wants us to wrestle with right at the very beginning. Why is this great God sending, hurling, thrusting this great storm upon Jonah? Now notice how the sailors respond. I just love this. All the sailors, we're told, were afraid. Now, actually, quick nerdy moment. I love this about the boat. Even the boat is personified in this story. I don't have this in my notes Otherwise, I'd have it up on the screen. But the boat uh, is personified. And when it says, it it actually says that the boat ponders breaking apart. And the word ponder, it's like thinking, hmm, should I stay together or should I break apart? It's pondering. And the word in Hebrew for ponder sounds like boards creaking about to break apart. You catch the violence of that? All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. They are terrified. Now think about this. These are professional sailors. These are guys who had spent their life on the sea, but this storm, something about this gadol, this great storm, has them shaking in their boots. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, the, the, the boat seems to be the one, first one to feel the fear, and the fear becomes contagious to the sailors. So you see, these guys are terrified. And so what do these sailors do? Well, what no sailor typically does, they start praying. Literally, they cry out each to his own God, the text tells us. Now, you have to remember something about these sailors. These are Gentiles. These are pagans. Don't you love that word? These are guys who lived in a pluralistic or polytheistic world. That means that there were lots of gods for them to choose from. Maybe their God, maybe your God was a local deity, or maybe it was a, the God of travelers or the God of the sea, but religion was a private matter. Most everyone carried some kind of relic, some kind of idol, some kind of token of their God with them. And in moments like this, you reached into your back pocket, pulled out your God token, and you prayed to your local God, hoping he might be strong enough to do something. Religion was a private matter. So they all start crying out to their own gods in hopes that one of them can do something. And you can kind of think of this as like a shotgun approach, right? They're all just kind of, hey, maybe one of the 50 gods we've got represented on this boat actually can help us. They're just trying to cover all their bases. Well, of course, and kind of humorously, this doesn't work, does it? So they do the next logical, or we might think illogical thing. They start throwing the cargo overboard kind of like our chips and salsa, wine and cheese that day in the Gulf. Now, I don't know if this is a good nautical practice or not. They didn't teach us this in the eight hours we had. But the picture we get here is one of total desperation. And we need to pause here and and really notice what's happening because this is approximately, get this, this is approximately a 12-month journey from Joppa to Tarshish. And the cargo on this ship, therefore, represents the livelihood, the salary of this, these men for the next year. Throwing this cargo overboard is like throwing away a year's worth of wages. Even if they do survive, this will devastate their lives. You see, Jonah's decision to run has turned him into a ticking time bomb. Or maybe more accurately, a ticking honing device for this great storm. But it's not just Jonah who suffers the consequences of that decision. It's everyone else aboard the ship. 
And this brings us to the first lesson from scene one of our story today, and that is this, that when we decide to run, when you decide, when I decide, when we decide to run from God, it is not those, excuse me, uh, we are not the only ones who suffer. It is those closest to us who often suffer the most. And this is such a profound image of the nature and consequences of sin in our world. Because here, here's what I think you want to believe, because here's, here's what I want to believe. I, I want to believe that my choices only affect me, right? I want to believe that morality is a private matter, that what happens in Vegas... See, we know this, don't we? We, we want to believe that our choices only affect me. We have a very privatized worldview. And what the scriptures do in this story and in many, many others is they expose just how naive this way of thinking is. The Bible's account for how our choices in our lives affect other people is very sophisticated. And so it might not be immediate. It might not be after the first choice or the second choice. But eventually those choices add up and they stack up. And eventually our choices spill over into the lives of others around us. Because when we decide to run from God, it is often those who are closest to us who suffer most. You see, Jonah becomes a kind of relational wrecking ball in the lives of these sailors. And the sailors are the ones who are paying the cost. Now, where is Jonah in the midst of all of this chaos? Well, uh, we're told quite humorously, he is in the bottom of the boat taking a nap. Now, you can laugh at that because this is meant to be humorous. Remember, I talked last week that Jonah, in many ways, is a comedy. The characters are always doing exactly the opposite of what we think they're supposed to do. Look at what verse 5 tells us. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Do you catch it? Do you catch the humor here? See, humor is one of the devices that the author of Jonah is using to disarm us, the reader. Because when we read that Jonah is down asleep in the boat, we think to ourselves, what is he doing? There's a storm that is about to sink his ship, and Jonah is living in total denial. And we think this, at least I think this to myself, I would never do that, would I? See, if the word associated with God in this story is the word gadol, great. The word associated with Jonah is the word down. He went down to Joppa, verse 3. He went down to the dock, He went down into the boat. He went down below deck. Ultimately, he will go down to the bottom of the ocean. Jonah's trajectory is down, down, and down. And what the author is doing here in this humorous moment of irony, a guy taking a nap in the midst of the life-threatening storm, is he's giving you and me a picture of sin. Because this is how disobedience works. We keep making choices after choices that are opposite of what we know God's desire is for us. And eventually, eventually this leads to the same place where it always leads. It always leads to a kind of spiritual slumber, a spiritual numbness. We close ourselves off to God's voice in our hearts and in our conscience in order to keep doing the thing that we know we shouldn't be doing. 
Denial in any form can be a deep and deafening kind of sleep. Well, it's at this moment, at this moment in the story, that we, the reader, begin to sense the answer to the question that we were presented with just a few verses earlier. Do you remember the question I asked? Why, why would God send such a violent storm? God is not trying to destroy Jonah. He's not trying to punish Jonah. As it turns out, he's trying to wake Jonah up. He's trying to get Jonah's attention. Some would call it tough love. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the author, calls it a severe mercy. We might simply call it Jonah's wake-up call. And that's what verse 6 is all about. Look at it with me. Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And this scene is so fantastic. Because this heathen, remember the characters are always going to do opposite what you expect. This heathen, this Gentile, this, this pagan, this captain is now speaking like a prophet of Yahweh. In fact, the words that he speaks are spoken by Jeremiah and by Isaiah and by Micah. He says, uh, call on your God and maybe we will not perish. It's the prophet's voice. In essence, he's saying, Jonah, dude, wake up. Call on God. It's not too late. But the truth is that there will be times in our lives when God may send a storm to get our attention, not because he's punishing you, but because he loves you and because he's trying to wake you up. I was thinking about such an incident in my own life when we first moved here, and this is a little bit embarrassing that it took me this long to learn this lesson, but when we first moved here, uh, we, I was still in the bad habit of checking my phone in the car. Please don't hate me. I'm just telling the truth here, right? I, none of you would ever do this. But I was at the stoplight here at Triangle, and uh, I did what you do when you're at a red light. What do you do? Well, you, you, you check your phone, right? I mean, you got 20, 10, 5 seconds. You gotta, I can't just sit there for 5 seconds. So I took, take out my phone. I start looking at it. And then I don't know what happened, but some kind of light caught my attention. And before looking up, I stepped onto the gas, and I slammed into the person in front of me. Now, thankfully, nothing but my wallet was hurt in the <laughs> incident, right? But it was a kind of wake-up call to me. What had happened? I could no longer live in denial about how dangerous my cell phone usage in my car was. Do you get it? It was a storm. It was a wake-up call. It was an opportunity to change. Well, here's where our story begins to pick up speed. So the captain drags Jonah up to the deck and the sailors are like, hey, let's, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this. Uh, throwing the cargo over the edge didn't work. Praying to our gods didn't work. So they, maybe we can cast lots. Um, literally, lots were like dice probably made out of whale bone or fish bone or animal bone. And they, so they're, they're literally, hey, let's just roll the dice and see what happens. So they roll the dice and of course the dice fall on Jonah. Yay, he wins the lottery. So he, uh, Jonah then... They say, well, uh, as chance happens, falls on Jonah. And they start uh, peppering him with questions. And I love this first question. What kind of work do you do? That's an interesting first question. I don't know why that matters. Uh, I always dread that question when I'm on an airplane. You know, I tell them I'm a pastor and it's all downhill from there. Uh, Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Right? They're just, ah. 
And look at how Jonah answers them. Listen to these words. I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. Oh, really, Jonah? Really? The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And see, you and I are supposed to chuckle at this a little bit. Because we know. We know that he hasn't been worshiping. This is like the Sunday school answer. These are the right words with all the wrong actions. Do you see the humor here? And look at how the sailors, the sailors are like, you worship the God who made the sea and you're running from him in a boat? How dumb are you? <laughs> now, I need to say a brief word about this word, worship, which is the second word that our story hinges on. Because some of your translations, if you've been reading this week, and by the way, I hope you are, our soap journals, we have these available in back. We are not only preaching verse by verse through this entire book of Jonah, we're also reading together as a church. and would love for you to join us in that. You can get those in back. But I need to say a word because some of your translations will translate this word worship differently. Do you know the other word that some translations will use? Anyone? Fear. Anybody have a translation that says fear? Because in Hebrew, get this, in Hebrew, the word for fear and the word for worship is the same word. Yare, yare. It can mean both afraid or terrified, but it can also mean to revere, to respect, to stand in awe of, to worship. And the best way I know to illustrate this word is by imagining yourself peering over the edge at the Grand Canyon. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand. Okay, so you kind of know this, right? The Grand Canyon is like Uray. You, you stand there and you, and you look and you're like, oh, man, I'm at, oh, fear, right? It's both fearful and awesome all at the same time. You get a feel for Uray? Now watch this. Because the rest of our passage is going to hinge on this word, fear, worship, yurei. Let's pick up in verse 10. This terrified them, yureid them. Literally, they feared a great fear, and they asked, what have you done? You see, they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. That's how smart Jonah is. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. See, Jonah's halfway there. He's willing to own his mistake, but he's not yet willing to repent. He would rather die than go to Nineveh. You catch a feel for that? The sailors understand something profound in this moment, that Jonah's life belongs to his God, and to take away something that belongs to this powerful great deity is likely to get you into trouble. Like the mafia, when you belong to a powerful God or family or nation, there are consequences when somebody messes with you, right? And so, worse than any storm upon them, worse than any, uh, any storm is the possibility of innocent blood upon them. And that is why they choose to brave the storm rather than get rid of Jonah in the next verse. They have heard the Lord Jonah is yet his prophet. So when they do what Jonah tells them to do, that is throw him overboard, they are actually obeying the Lord. 
For you, Lord, they say, have done as you desired. But what they don't yet know is how the Lord is going to respond. They don't yet know what kind of God this great God is. Is he fearful to be feared? Or is he good to be worshipped? And it all hinges on this word, Yareh. Look at how this chapter ends, our final verses here. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. They're like, hey, we're not killing him. We don't want that on him. This guy's worse than the Godfather. Let's just row, right? They're just trying. And they can't get anywhere. Like, they can't beat the storm. And so look at this. This, this is amazing to me. Again, this, these are Gentile, polytheistic, pagan sailors who cry out to Yahweh, and they even use nice manners. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. And this has the smell of the gospel all over it. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Now, this final verse, this final verse reveals what the entire story has been about up until this point. For in spite of Jonah's failures, God will yet have his way. God's mercy will yet be proclaimed to the nations. And look what happens in our final verse. At this, the men greatly feared. Gadol Yareh are two words coming together. They greatly feared the Lord, and they offered him sacrifice, and they made vows to him. The sailors come to Jesus. This is their come to Yahweh moment. And this is not a one-time thing. They make sacrifices. That's something you can only do back on the land in the temple. They make vows. They've committed to following and worship this Yahweh. They have become full-blown converts, not because Jonah was a powerful prophet, but because God will accomplish his purposes regardless of Jonah's decisions. You see, this is what no one expected. This is what no one saw coming. And in many ways, the story of Jonah actually points forward to another storm and another boat and another group of sailors who are quite afraid. Maybe you know this story. It's found in Mark chapter 4. Jesus and his disciples went out on a boat one night to cross to the other side. And guess who else is asleep in the boat that evening? Jesus. And the wind and the waves were told, swell up, and a fierce, great storm comes upon them. And how do, the, how do the disciples react? Do you remember this? Well, they're freaking out. They're totally free. And they go just like the captain does. They go and they wake up Jesus, and they say exactly the same thing that was spoken. Don't you care that we're going to drown, Jesus? And do you remember what Jesus does? The Bible tells us Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves and the storm stops. And how do the disciples respond? They are terrified. They're terrified. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? 
gadol, greatness in Jesus. You see, the sailors of both vessels, Jesus' vessel and Jonah's vessel, both had a kind of spiritual awakening that day. Their eyes were opened. Not only is this a great God, the Lord Jesus, one to be feared, respected, and revered, but he is also a good God. As the scriptures say, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And my friends, this, this I believe is the lesson that we are to learn from chapter one of Jonah's story. It's about this wild God who is yet good. You see, God is much wilder than we are often prepared to accept. We want a God that fits nicely in our back pocket, that we can pull out in times of trouble and pray to, but this wild God will not be tamed. Which is why C.S. Lewis's character of Aslan the lion from Narnia is such a fitting image of the God of the Bible. He is fierce. He is powerful. He is one to be feared if he wills evil. But he is one to be worshipped if his heart is good. And one day, you too will encounter the greatness of this God. If you have not already. Maybe in a storm maybe at the edge of a canyon, you will encounter this great God and His great mercy. And when you do, my friend, you will have the same choice that the sailors had. You will make one of two choices. You can run or you can worship. The choice is yours.